Gay SA Radio, where you are family. In this series, we listen to the discussions that were held during the South African LGBTI Business Summit, setting an LGBTI economic empowerment agenda. The summit was held at the Equinox Center at the Absa Capital in Santon in Johannesburg on Tuesday the 11th of September 2018. The purpose of this inaugural South African LGBTI Business Summit is to position LGBTI economic muscle in the business sphere by making a strong business case for the economic inclusion of LGBTI people and, by doing that, open up new business and other economic empowerment opportunities for LGBTI people. Discussions during the summit will demonstrate how this can be done, identify opportunities to make it happen and craft strategies to overcome obstacles. In Session 3, the topic is the Compliance Case, Scoping LGBTI Economic Empowerment Within the Transformation Regulatory Arena. This session assessed the potential of coercive regulatory mechanisms for LGBTI economic empowerment in South Africa and critically assessed potential strategies to make a more explicit case for compliance. Good afternoon, I can say now. Um, so we know the buying power of the community. Uh, I think that's very important, and I don't think uh, we, can we can stress it enough. I was really surprised with that discussion that Kanti moderated, because it gave me information that made me realize the power of the LGBTI community when it comes to uh, what we can afford around the world, not just in South Africa. So now we don't have to be shy knowing what we know. We can take the discussion even further. Uh, we're now going to look at the compliance case, and this session will basically uh, try to interrogate whether the Companies Act, the Employment Equity Act, things we've mentioned uh, through the discussions here, whether it's actually explicit enough in ensuring uh, the LGBTI economic transformation in the workplace. We have them in place. Sia mentioned it as well. Um, but are they being used properly? Are we getting um, our human rights covered in that regard? Are we approaching companies that are not implementing this properly and saying to them, hey, you're messing up, you're not doing this properly, you're sidelining us despite the rights that we have in our democratic constitution? The one thing that we can boast about in South Africa is our democratic uh, constitution, and I say it all the time. We, we should be proud of it. Um, given that and the fact that we now know that we're not entirely using our rights adequately and properly in the workplace. Uh, who better to lead this discussion than Gail Smith from the Human Rights Commission, an organization that champions our rights as individuals in South Africa, regardless of whether you're LGBTI or any race group or anything like that. Uh, this is a group that we all look to when we find and feel that our, our rights are being infringed on. Gail, you inspire us. Um, you help protect our rights in a way that uh, a court can't in some instances because you will look at things uh, regardless of the circumstances. You'll fight and look into whether someone is oppressed in any way uh, regardless of the circumstances. So come up and carry on. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Shahan said, my name is Gail Smith. I'm the spokesperson for the South African Human Rights Commission. I'm also head of advocacy and communications. Um, and I was particularly pleased during the opening video um, when the woman who was doing the voiceover <clears throat> spoke about the importance of advocacy and the importance of, of knowledge and information. One of the reasons why I took the job at the Human Rights Commission was because I was really tired of trying to understand why the South African Constitution was so globally revered. We talk about it all the time, it's globally revered. I never understood it as a South African, why this Constitution was so amazing. And that's one of the reasons why I went, I took the job as a journalist, I went to go and work at the Human Rights Commission. And it has been a pleasure for the last two years to get to grips with the Constitution and to begin to understand this document, which really is the social compact for our democracy. This is a constitutional democracy and this is the highest law in the land. And I think that this is one of the most exciting places in the world to do human rights work. 
Um, I think these kinds of conversations are particularly exciting in the context of South Africa. So without much further ado, I want to introduce the panel today um, that's going to be discussing. So our job here is to look at compliance. Now, I don't know if anybody's worked in public sector, but (laughs) compliance is a big issue. But if you've worked in public sector, you also know about malicious compliance, yeah? Okay, so the session will assess the potential of coercive regulatory mechanisms for LGBTI economic empowerment in South Africa and is going to critically assess potential strategies to make a more explicit case for compliance. I have many issues um, that I want to bring to the table, but I'm here just as a moderator. So I'm going to introduce uh, the panel um, and bring them in. So um, Tracy Humby is from Young Earth Attorneys, um, and she'll be joining us today. Um, And then Patrick Bracha, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name properly, Patrick. Say again? Bracha. Bracha, my apologies. Um, And Patrick is from Norton Rose Fulbright, and then Jared Daniels from Accenture. So these are three panelists. I had um, asked them very, very briefly if I could, just by way of introduction at the beginning, speak a little, because we are going to be speaking about compliance legislation and coercion, which (laughs) made my blood run cold a little bit. And I just wanted to um, share a little bit, a a week or so ago, some of you might have seen headlines um, driven by Solidarity indicating that the Employment Equity Act was going to be changed irrevocably and that the Human Rights Commission essentially agreed with with the the approach to employment equity. And just for the purposes of of clarifying, because I think it's very, very important. I don't know, where's that slide? Oh, Okay, I just wanted to very, very briefly project this on, because this is one of the reasons that I think makes the South African Constitution so phenomenal. As a black woman, as a black feminist, it gives me great pleasure that that, that intersectionality is at the heart of our Constitution. These are the protected grounds in terms of Section 9 of our Constitution. All of these grounds are protected in terms of Section 9 of the Constitution. And I think for the purposes of today's discussion, I think it's very, very important for us to realize that rights have a continuum and that they're interrelated and interconnected. And that as the LGBTI community, much as you might be advocating for your own rights, and let's just say tomorrow we have a situation where, hey, magically, kumbaya, LGBTI rights are enforced and protected and your businesses are thriving. If your businesses continue to violate any of these grounds, you will be in violation of the Constitution and you will not be aspiring to the sort of grand sweep and scope of our Constitution. That it is very, very important to realize that that intersectionality means you might not be being discriminated against based on your sexual orientation, but you could very well have a situation where it is both culture and disability that is the core issue at stake in a particular thing. That we mustn't look at things as a single issue. That we are are complex and multi multivaried beings, for want of a better word, and this is explicitly recognized in our constitution. One of the other difficulties of doing business in human rights in South Africa, specifically when you're looking at LGBTI issues, is the complexity of the South African constitution. It protects both sexual orientation, marital status, sex, and gender. Yeah, so you have to, in any given situation when you get a human rights violation, assess what is the key, the, the core right that is being violated here, and are there more than one? So just very briefly, I wanted to bring that into play because we are talking about legislative frameworks and we are talking about laws and policies. And I think in some ways we're also talking about the limits of the law. So with that said, you can take the slide down. I just wanted to give that as some brief background. And then just to say, <clears throat> very recently, the Human Rights Commission in its equality report, which we've just released, and I would highly recommend you read it. It's on our website. We, got, we have a reputation as a useless bulldog. If we are a useless bulldog, let me tell you, we hung on to the John Coelani matter for nine years. So we're a useless bull, bulldog, but we've got Teflon teeth. Once we dig into you, we don't let go of you. Um, so basically, in our equality report recently, there was an implicit recognition of the importance of disaggregated data and the fact that you do need to disaggregate data in order to ensure that there is not additional discrimination that happens in the workplace. So in terms of the um, Employment Equity Act, 
Our suggestion was that the definition of designated groups as contained in the, the Employment Equality Equity Act, um, it could give rise to new imbalances in the workplace. And this is the slippage where LGBTI rights could fall between the cracks, and that's why there's the need for, for greater disaggregation of, of data. We said specifically that affirmative action measures must be targeted at groups and individuals who are subject to unfair discrimination. And I think as a sector, it's something that you do need to think about the notion of the, the fact that the Constitution does not outlaw um, discrimination per se, that there's a recognition that there is a relative degree of fair discrimination that does have to happen. And if you think about the, the, the discourses of race, where black people are told, but now this is reverse discrimination, that you as a sector could very well come up against that. And it's important to understand the law, what it means, how it works, and how you then counteract the suggestion that you are now unfairly, you know, you, you, are, you are now subject to sort of extra privileges that you're not entitled to. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them, just to say that we do make certain recommendations for a broader lens on um, employment equity, that there's an implicit recognition of intersectionality and that it's not always just one thing that defines you as a human being or that is at play at any particular point in a, in a, a situation of power, which I think um, the economy inevitably is. Now I will stop speaking and hand over to you. Do you want to go? So. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. So I was given a, a bit of a warning from Gail. She said, are you going to speak about the law? And I said, oh, yes. So the other hat that I wear is that I'm a professor at Fitz University, where I've taught law for many years. And I do feel it's important to talk about the law and to understand not just your constitutional rights, but to understand this concept of a transformative workplace regulatory arena. So the work that I've done for the other foundation, the title of the research paper is A Compliance-Based Approach to LGBT Economic Empowerment, Let's Get Real. And it plays with the question, in the South African context, we already have a framework for economic empowerment, for broad-based black economic empowerment. Where could sexual minorities fit? And that's what the Let's Get Real is about. And that's why it's important to understand what do we mean by a transformative workplace regulatory arena? What is a compliance-based approach? And so when my, the short time allocated to me, I'm just going to briefly set out how I organize it all in my head. And I'll have reference to the Employment Equity Act, which I have to say is different from the Equality Act. The Equality Act is the promotion, the PEPUDA, as we know we call it in the law school, Promotion of Equality Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act. The Employment Equity Act is really your discrimination law for the workplace. The BEE framework and then the Companies Act. So, to my mind, a compliance-based approach is one where you have compliance-based regulatory instruments and you have enforcement measures. So an example would be, under the Employment Equity Act, designated employers must prepare an employment equity plan. And if you don't do that, you get a fine. So your regulatory measures, your employment equity plan, your enforcement is your fine. And there are very, I think, innovative and fine-tuned instruments in both the Employment Equity Act and the BEE framework to promote and advance discriminated groups. So that's just the idea of compliance-based compliance approach. It's backed by the state's power. There's some kind of sanction. It's the, it's the stick rather than the carrot. So what scope is there for, for sexual minorities to fit into this framework? The next concept is the idea of this transformative workplace regulatory arena. And in my mind, it really rests on two pillars. And the first pillar is protection. Both of these pillars have their roots in the Constitution. Because the Constitution lists the rights and it lists the grounds, and it talks about unfair discrimination and advancement. So the first leg of that workplace arena is protection. How do we protect people from discrimination? And the second leg is advancement. So protection, how it works under the Employment Equity Act, is that you have a right not to be unfairly discriminated against. And that includes the ground of sexual orientation. So in any kind of employment practice, recruitment, promotion, dismissal, etc., you can claim that you've been unfairly discriminated against. 
Your enforcement measure here is going to the CCMA. So there's no other kind of state sanction associated with transgressing those grounds. That, I would argue, is the first leg of a weak approach to LGBT economic empowerment. That needs to work well, because if that's not working well, you're not going to advance <coughs> sexual minorities. Do we know, is it working well? Are companies reporting? Are they monitoring these cases? Are they making it easy for people to, to, to note their concerns on these grounds or their policies? That, that is the first area that we need to look at. The second area is advancements. And that also falls under the Employment Equity Act through the Employment Equity Plan. But as Gail has already mentioned, that only applies to designated groups. And designated groups are based on race, gender, and disability, not inclusive of sexual minorities. The BE framework, which is very complex, your act, your generic code, your sector-specific code, and then you get transformation charters, all rest on the same idea of advancing those particular groups. Race, but, but, but in this case, limited to black people, which is defined as Indian, colored, and African. So the categories that matter for the whole BEE framework are those, it's black people, and then specific groups are mentioned in the act. Women, workers, youth, disabled people, and rural people. So sexual minorities don't feature, and that's why you can't really talk about a strong-armed approach to LGBT economic empowerment that falls under, the, under that framework, because you, they, they're not mentioned in the main act. So if you wanted to change that, you'd have to actually amend the legislation, which is why the Human Rights Commission's recommendations are significant, because they seem to be pushing the government in that direction, but until it happens, you don't have, for a compliance-based approach, you don't have that pillar, that, that, that hook. So what, what can one do? I think there is there's room to talk about a beyond compliance approach, and this is where the Companies Act might be relevant. So the Companies Act in Section 7 says companies must also advance human rights. The Companies Regulations talk about a social and ethics committee, and one of the functions of that social and ethics committee is to report on the company's compliance with, amongst others, the Employment Equity Act. So at, very, at the very least, companies should be monitoring how easy it is for sexual minorities in their workplace to, to voice these, their concerns around discrimination. The other is perhaps a bit more far-fetched, uh, but in the transformation charters, which are not binding, they're, they're developed by sectors, but they're not binding like the sector codes are under the BEE framework, there, is, there could be room for a beyond compliance approach that mentions sexual minorities. So those, for me, are the two areas where we can have work. Um, the, 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 the idea of a strong, a weak and a strong LGBT economic empowerment, and for the moment, really concentrating that the first pillar works really well and linking it up with compliance under the Companies Act. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know how many of you see that neat little Facebook clip. A little girl says, my mama says they're burning their Nike shoes because they've run out of crosses. <laughs> And why I mention that is because I, I'm acting for Castor Semenya challenging the eligibility regulations of the International Athletics Federation. And that is a typical example of, of a body who wants to stop someone's career because they don't conform to their particular view of what a woman should look like. And the, the medical person who's leading the, the fray is on record as saying that that she doesn't look like a ramp model. And, you know, it's really, it's an appalling, it's almost a, sort of another form of colonialism there. And the problem to me is that the word transformation has been a bit hijacked in this country because if you look at the new Insurance Act, it's only been in force for a month and a half now. The definition of transformation only refers to broad-based black economic empowerment. When Every new act, and we've got a new legal act that doesn't talk about transformation, and it should be built in everywhere. If you look at that handout that you've got from the United Nations, it's 
the last page there are five or six paragraphs and four of them start with the words businesses should. Now the interesting thing about South Africa is that in this context because of our Bill of Rights, and you can see this tattered book here in DOA, I do use it for bedtime reading. Um, in the Constitution it's not businesses should but businesses must and government must. If I can just read you a couple of things you have to start with section 2. The Constitution is the supreme law of the Republic. Law or conduct inconsistent with it is invalid and the obligations imposed must be fulfilled. It's not a choice. It's And if you look at um, rights in section 7, the state must respect, protect and promote and fulfill the rights in the Bill of Rights. And if you look at you and me, no person may unfairly discriminate. These are imperatives. They're not shoulds. They are definitely not shoulds. And we, you know, I've been doing, in the Semenya context, I've been going around the world looking for opinions on, on whether these regulations would be enforceable in different jurisdictions. I've been to India, Australia, Europe, USA, Canada, and I've got an opinion here from Isabel Goodman, and our rights are just better than anybody else's. Australia couldn't even give me a solution. So we, we're very well provisioned. But I, what I want to say in that context, I, I don't like the word coercion, because I'll tell you why the, why the must is very useful, because for a corporation, it's a defense. Because when people say to you, well, you know, you're doing things beyond the pale for us, you say, well, I have to do it. I have to do it under the law. And I want to give you a few examples, and Tracy's already touched on some of them, and they're in that other handout where Clanty and I did an article in the Business Day. But there are many things that can be done, and unless you get your rights enforced, you, you won't get anywhere, because it's, it, you need some champion. And I was sitting next to Tom, and he said, well, that's sometimes the problem. You need somebody at the top. So you need to persuade people at the top. And I've said in that other article that you need to get representation on the social and ethics committee of a major company. Every major company has to have one, and they have to respect the rights. If you look at the Companies Act, you'll see that the ultimate regulator is the, is the commission, the CIPC, which runs the whole Companies Act. They've got disciplinary rights, and they can fine people for not obeying. If you get shareholders in a major company and you go to the annual general meeting and ask them to be accountable for what they do, they have to give you an answer. If you're a registered company on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, you'll find that there's a whole page in the King Code on, on transformation and human rights and respecting the Bill of Rights. And the JSE rules say that any, any company on the Stock Exchange has to be compliant with the King Code, and there are many other laws, insurance laws, banking laws, which say that the King Code is all important, and everybody has regulators. The King Code says that the non-executive directors in a company must be separated from management in certain issues, including, um, uh, manage, uh, including employment rights and fairness in labor practices. So to me, there's a whole bunch of things that can be done. The other thing I think that has to be done, you, one needs internationally to gauge, engage with somebody like Google because, you know, there's nothing like Google and Facebook and all these ads you get for guiding people's thinking, for better or for worse. And if you get it properly done, and the stories about artificial intelligence sort of guiding thinking are quite extraordinary. They're supposed to won Brexit and the USA election. And that's quite a credible argument. So there are ways of doing that, and one's got to sort of shame people like that. I didn't maybe not have to shame them. Google have a pretty good record for, for human rights. The other thing is that Section 22 of the Constitution, that's the one that says everybody's entitled to have a trade or profession, and they say it may be regulated by law. And I've always read that section until this morning, funnily enough, thinking regulated by law may be restricted by law. But, of course, it doesn't have to mean that. It can be regulated by law in the sense that every trade, profession, or, or business has to be regulated in a positive sense. We can call upon the state to regulate things by law and to impose transformation on people. So that is my message. I mean, there's, there's lots of tools out there, and I think that as a 
as a community and all of us have to use the tools that are available in order to access these rights. They're there, they're enforceable, there's a regulator for every industry these days. And the regulators are part of the government, the regulators are subject to the constitutional obligations I read out to you, and you can hold people to account and give them an excuse for behaving properly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you've got one. Okay, cool. You can hang on to that. I'm all wired up. Yeah. Hi everyone. So, can you hear me? Yes. There we go. Okay, so my name is Jared Daniels. I um, have two jobs at Accenture. Uh, the first one is that I'm a technology consultant manager, um, and I'm also the Pride lead for Accenture South Africa. Um, so, I, within the Pride space, have a number of functions. The first one is to be progressive around LGBT agenda within Accenture. Um, and that really stems from our global practice because we have a very matured global um, LGBT network, networks around the world. Uh, we have about 44 networks within the countries and regions that we're operating within Accenture globally. Um, so that's that one piece. Second piece is to kind of support or actually support our LGBT community around policies, around any issues they experience within the workplace and also to drive and give leadership support towards our LGBT community within our um, business. Um, and then the third one is just to really connect and network and bring our LGBT community together so that they're supportive of one another um, and that, you know, as Accenture, we support each other as, as, a, as an organization. So, yeah, um, I think I want to tackle the question or the topic on two fronts. There's the, the topic around protecting um, our LGBT community around issues that arise within the workplace, and it's the other side it comes to employment equity um, within LGBT in that space. So from a LGBT issue perspective, I think from an Accenture South Africa perspective and even Accenture globally, we have a lot of practices whereby um, we have a lot of interlocks with our HR department, with our leadership team, it's very supportive of LGBT individuals in Accenture. Um, where any issue arises, they know, and, and everyone in our organization knows, if there's anything that comes up within the workplace, I always say don't let it slide. Someone needs to come and have a discussion with me, with HR, with our leadership team, raise that issue, because unless we are aware of the issues that were happening in our workplace, we can't really effectively resolve them and develop initiatives to educate our practice around those issues and also prevent them from happening in the future. So that's one side we got. We have a number of initiatives where we talk about issues in the workplace. Uh, one that we recently just launched this year is called Pride Talks. Um, it's generally a monthly call that we have with our entire business in Accenture South Africa where we talk about specific topics. For example, um, coming out as an LGBT person. What are the, the ways that Accenture support our LGBT community when they come out? Um, what are the kind of things we acknowledge, you know, if someone comes out to me and says, you know, I'm a gay individual. You know, we don't go and talk about that to other people in the organization. That's their private decision that they felt comfortable coming to you and talking to you about it. And so we don't kind of, you know, gossip or do office gossip, those kind of things. Um, so Pride Talks, is, we spoke about coming up, we spoke about LGBTIQQIAPP, um, all the various, you know, the pluses, how it's expanding and different facets of that. Um, and also educating our business around our policies um, around LGBT. So from an Accenture perspective, we are quite equal when it comes to um, our heterosexual benefits within our organization. So when it comes to adoption leave, bereavement, medical aid, dress code, when it comes to our heterosexual employees, we're pretty much equal on that space. Um, so that's just one of the things that we can do with our practices that we support our, our colleagues by educating them on what benefits and policies to take them and what benefits they can get from our organization. So that's all from the, the, um, the uh, support side. Uh, we also got quite a lot of visible support, so you can see I have my little pipe in here. We have a huge LGBT wall in our um, Accenture so Johannesburg office, um, and also most of us, we are Pride, lan pride Lanyards um, as part of our um, ally program, which we have quite, it's quite big in, in internationally around our organization. So in Accenture, we have about 450,000 employees around the world. Um, our ally program to date is about 36,000 people and growing every day. So that number, we're always excited to see that number grow every month. Um, then from our employment equity side, I do acknowledge that there is some gaps within the market or things Accenture, um, sorry, within um, 
South Africa when it comes to employment equity. Um, but from an Accenture perspective, we decided as an organization in South Africa that we're not going to wait for the law to kind of catch up. Uh, what we're doing is that we have to, a kind of strategy around how we're going to approach employment equity within Accenture. So the first one is that we kicked off uh, about a year and a half ago with a self-ID program, which enables um, individuals in the organization to self-identify their sexual orientation um, as well as their, um, their gender identity as well. And that's completely voluntary. We don't kind of force anyone in our organization to do it. But it's a way that we want to start using that metric to understand what is, how are we recruiting talent within our organization when it comes to LGBT, um, what are the kind of growth um, progression points that LGBT is experiencing and attrition, and, and kind of start managing those kind of things from that front. Um, so that we started and we're kicking off and rolling that out for the past couple of years. And then one of the initiatives that I'm going to be kicking off with our employment equity forum, which I'm also on, by the way, um, is that we're going to start divert, um, strategizing around how we bring uh, LGBT to the employment equity front, uh, what are the kind of metrics and targets that we want to accomplish from an LGBT perspective, and then you know, kind of give that to HR and our recruitment um, uh, areas within our business to draw in that, that, that talent around LGBT. But then essentially we really do want to employ the best people within the industry so that we, we believe that um, inclusion and diversity makes us strong as an organization. Um, and it's through our diversity that we come up with the best and innovative solutions for our clients. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so before we open it up for questions, I suppose just based on what the three of you have said, I do have a question that arises from what the session is, is trying to do. If we're trying to assess potential strategies to make you know, an exp explicit case for compliance and we accept that strategy is essentially a roadmap that it tells us where we want to go. My question to the three of you is then, is coercion a good strategy? Is, is coercion, is a coercive legislative framework a good way to go? Um, and attached to that is the, the, the idea that people need to know their rights in order to assert their rights. Yeah, and what we're seeing at the Human Rights Commission is that a lot of people know that racism is wrong. A lot of people don't know about all those other rights in Section 9. And there was a young man at the, at the back who called BS on um, employment e equity. And what has happened, I think, as a society is we fetishize race to a certain extent. Yeah, if there is a conflict between two people of two different races, we immediately assume that it is race that is the divide. We don't go to the other issues of um, gender. We don't necessarily go to the issues of disability or, or sexual orientation. But I'm going off my point here. The point really that I want to ask you is, is coercion, we have the best laws in the world. We have fantastic policies, but ultimately there are human beings who have to implement them, and that's where the wheels come off in South Africa. So for instance, we have legislation that you know makes termination of pregnancy legal in South Africa, and yet women are still dying um, in, you know, in the quest to get, have TOP simply because um, medical practitioners and people at the coalface are claiming conscience and not wanting to assist. We know what happened after the TAC victories. Great victory. Yay! Years and years of getting people inside of the healthcare to treat people with HIV with dignity. So the question that I'm asking is, you know, what are the limits of the law and legislation here and how do we get over those limitations and, and is a coercive legislative framework necessarily the way to go to give us the kind of equality that the Constitution envisages, even though it doesn't specifically identify um, sexual orientation. Maybe start with you first, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a complicated question. It is. I'm sorry. Look, I think there are many angles to it, and the first thing is to. I, th I think of coercion in two ways. So the one way is: does it shift power? Does it change power in the workplace? And to the extent that it gives people rights and access to remedies, it's good. And that is a form of coercion. The other kind of coercion is around, for example, developing your plan for making sure that you've got demographic representation at every job level, which can drive a kind of fronted tick box approach that doesn't lead to real change. So you only want coercion to the extent that it leads to real change. What will make people change their behavior? Sometimes coercion is the only route to go, and it also changes 
the discourse. It changes how we talk about things. One of the difficulties, and I'm, I'm interested in Jared's uh, mentioning of his self-identification program, how do you verify that you're gay or lesbian or bisexual? You know? So the, the, the BE framework rests on a very sophisticated system of proof. How do you prove this? And what implications will that have for people having to come out? Do you want to force people to come out? So that is one of the, what I think the difficulties around LGBT as the invisible minority and how it would work in a compliance-based framework. Okay, so maybe I can just respond. So, um, so let me just tackle this from two perspectives. So um, from an accentual perspective, um, we really do everything we do in from an organization perspective it stems to our core values. And two core values that speak really to the pride agenda is respect for the individual. Everything that we do within our organization, we respect individuals for who they are and we celebrate that diversity. Um, as you know, from an accentual perspective, we are a people-driven organization. Without our people, we don't have a business. So we take that core value quite importantly in everything we do in our business practice. The second thing is around best people. And we really, when we're talking about best people perspective, it's around how do we develop and cultivate the talent from an LGBT perspective um, within our organization by ensuring that LGBT people are supported, that they feel that they are respected as individuals, and that they have career growth, etc. So that's the two things from our pride perspective that we really do. Um, and from an accenture perspective, we really have very strong leadership support when it comes to pride. So, and I, I think that's an important recipe when it comes to success in LGBT from a corporate perspective. Um, LGBT is supported by our global uh, CEO. Um, even within South Africa, our country managing director is a proud supporter of um, the LGBT community. And if there's any issues that does arise, we do you know, bring it to the LGBT um, uh, committee. We discuss it there, and he says to us, you know, if there's anything that you guys want to talk to me about that you feel is out of your control, you want to discuss, my door's always open to you guys, and we can have a conversation around that. Um, so it's always great to have that leadership support. Around our, our, our self-ID program, it is completely voluntary. I don't think there's a way you can ever kind of check if it's, you know, if someone's identifying as gay to prove that, it, that they are indeed gay. Um, I think from, we, we, we trust our people in, in that, you know, if they do self-identify as a gay individual, that's their choice. Um, and we do want to use that information to kind of further and better their careers within Accenture. When it comes to reporting on that, we don't ever report um, their names to anyone within the organization. Reporting is strictly controlled within Accenture uh, when it comes to LGBT and self-ID program. From a uh, local perspective, only one person within South Africa has access to it, and it's at a rolled-up level. So we can see this, you know, so much people are identifying as gay, but we don't know that individual is. Um, so that's tightly controlled and protected in our um, essential servers and database and technology that we have in our security. Um, in terms of coercion, I think that at the end of the day, I think corporates do need to come together um, and start building that support as a joint body to start building the support and the case for LGBT equality and for us to work together to share best practices from an LGBT perspective so that you know as organizations we can develop each other and develop the industry and kind of put that pressure on government and other industries around in South Africa that is honestly really supportive around LGBT to drive that change within our um, within our landscape. Um, I think for me that's the most constructive way to do it. Can I say um, uh, three things? First of all, I've mentioned that we have a lot of laws. There's got to be accountability and there's got to be some form of enforcement. Always the difficulty is who does the coercing because um, anybody who's in employment in the company is it's very unfair to expect one or two people to come forward and be the coercive people, which is why I've suggested that when you go to the JSE or the CIPC to do something, that is the route to go. The other thing that's a pity to me, you know, we passed the Employment Equity Act and we've got the Equality Act and they're sort of in parallel. And they, there's a lot of things in the Equality Act which should be in the Employment Equity Act. And we have the thing called the CCMA and you'll go there and for any labor dispute, you will take your labor dispute. 
to me there should be what is in the Equality Act, there should be a division of the CCMA which is like the Equality Court which will deal with rights issues like this. And what they do in the, in the courts is they train special magistrates and judges to be equality judicial officers. They train them in human rights and, and enforcing things. And then it's not just the ordinary CCMA person that you get there. The other thing is if you look at the, the code on sexual harassment, it's very interesting because it says, and the case law says that if there's sexual harassment in a company and somebody has a claim against the company and can prove that the company took no steps to stop somebody harassing me, then the company itself is personally liable for any damages or losses suffered by the person. And there's quite a lot of stuff in the, in the Code on Sexual Harassment which also needs to be broadened into a much bigger transformation. It goes back to my original point that the word transformation has been too narrowed down and all these human rights issues need to be brought into the sphere of, of enforcement. And I gave the example earlier of treating everyone fairly regulation. It's not a bad idea to tell boards what they have to do. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I thought that was particularly interesting. I just, before we open it up, right, I don't, know, I don't know where we are in terms of time, so somebody needs to guide me here. But just one point that I, I wanted to make earlier, I mean, we're talking about data and we're talking about the importance of data, but I think that we also all have to be cognizant of the Protection of Personal Information Act, which <laughs> is going to change and demand that we all change the way we deal with data and the way we protect data and how we look and what that then means in real terms for those of us who are concerned with social justice and human rights and the importance that data then plays in making that the argument for, for rights. Um, that you, know, you need to be cognizant of popia, the kinds of questions, the information that you are getting, why you're getting it, its necessity, how long you keep it, how you protect it, etc., etc. Do we have to wrap up? Do we have time for questions? We do. We do. One round. Okay, we'll take one round of questions. And just in one last thing that I want to punch from the Human Rights Commission, because it's my job, um, is just that we must always keep in mind that these are structural issues here, yeah, that this is not about, oh gosh, I really like Tracy even though she's lesbian. You know, I mean, the point is really it's not about what people on individual basis think of one another. It's not whether you like me as a black person or not. That's, that's, it's completely irrelevant. The issue is that these are structural inequalities, that homophobia is as South African as racism, it's as South African as misogyny, and that they, they are built into the very structures of our society, and that we do need to get away from this idea that if we all just change and love gay and lesbian people, that everything would change. These things are actually built into the structure, and they relate specifically to power, which is why the Constitution and the, the legislation that gives, gives you know, sort of life to the Constitution recognizes that equity matters as much as equality and that it's important for us to remember that distinction, that it's not a personal choice. And the absolute okay, okay, I've got a challenge for you, by the way, because the, the employment... Oh, not from a lawyer! <laughs> <laughs> if it's legal, I'm just going to leave. The Equality Act has a thing called the Equality Review Committee, and your chairperson is an ex-officio member of that. If you go on the Justice website, they say there are three vacancies and they've got old names on there. And one of the jobs of the Equality Review Committee is to, to advise the Minister on equal access to employment opportunities. And it's a committee that hasn't done anything and it needs to do something. Oh, you've hit me on my Human Rights Commission. Point taken. And it is a, it's a sore point for me. It's a really, really sore point for me. But I lose my job if I give you the honest answer. Okay. Yeah, we can talk offline. No, no, we can talk offline. And it's a little bit about my pay grade, that question. So maybe we should take some questions. Um, okay, I see some hands. So shall we take three? Okay, so I'm recognizing you, and I'm recognizing you. Are there any others? Okay, oh, there's a third one. Okay, um, Thanks very much. One of the issues that I wanted to raise, particularly as a shortcoming of our, of our, our current set of, of laws, um, is that it takes a very binary approach to um, you know, how the law exists and how we enforce the law. So often, um, even in the workplace or in other instances, one has to identify as either male or female, and in a lot of instances, that uh, identification isn't even really necessary. 
Um, I know that this is globally quite an issue because the question of, of you know, uh, not even just the third gender, but why this binary approach to, to gender identification is so important in the law and how that, I think, is perhaps the next really big question in terms of the laws that we do develop and why, you know, do we still need to very much go on this very strictly binary approach, particularly because we know, even in the, in the African context or in the South African context, the idea of this binary approach doesn't apply to a lot of communities. It doesn't apply to a lot of languages. You know, it's, it's, it's very much a question of, of what has been put in place. Um, and so I think that's a current challenge of the current legal system. It'd be interesting to know what the position of the panel is. Thank you for that. Um, yeah? Um, thank you. Um, I, was, I was just trying to think through the practicalities of having uh, LGBTI as a designated, uh, sorry, as a, as a designated group. Um, so, so really trying to understand how, how that would work practically. I mean, I, I really do like the idea because the principle is people or groups that have been discriminated against historically, so clearly fall within the broad category. But then where does the burden of proof fall to the lawyers? In other words, is it for me to prove that I'm gay, or is it for the company to prove that they don't discriminate against people, irrespective of identity? Thank you. Okay, let's take the third, third one of you. Yeah, it's a, it's a very short question, actually. Um, um, has the discussion of, around these different acts and, and around the Constitution created um, more space to talk about um, discrimination more broadly, um, even if, if the act is um, it's very narrow in its definition of um, what kind of dis discrimination it tackles? Has it created um, an incentive for, for businesses to start thinking broader, um, both in terms of um, sexual orientation, gender identity, but also other... Um, grants that are not explicitly protected. Thank you. Okay, um, so let's come to the panel. Um, the binary, does anybody want to take the, the, the question about the gender binary in our laws? Can I, I just address that because it's, it's the issue in the Semenya case, of course, and it's a, it's a very difficult issue because what the IAAF have said, well, you can't run as a woman, you can go and run as a man, which is ridiculous because there are 14-year-old males who run faster than Custer, so that'll be the end of her career. Or they can say you can go and run in intersex games, which don't exist. So it's, uh, it, but uh, the whole question of, of binary and, and the, inter, the, the movement between the two is probably the biggest issue in, in gender issues in the world at the moment, which is why this case is so important. It's, I haven't got an instant solution for you because it has some weird outcomes. Um, what is the other one I was going to deal with? Um, just, just the use of the, the laws. I mean, I think the laws are very useful because places like all the companies you see represented here, my company, Accenture, it's because of the laws that we can push people in management to do things. I mean, they, they definitely work when you've got the right intent. Would you like to deal with the, the practical realities of being of a, of a compliance-based approach. So the first obligation would be an obligation on the designated employer to report. And then that would go with some kind of need to identify. So how, how do you do this? And there is a parallel in the indigenous rights movement, for example, long debates about how, do you, how you identify indigenous people, but really rests on self-identification. So there is a parallel for that. I personally don't know if that is the best route to go because essentially what we want is people respecting our lifestyle. And if you want to go to the affirmative action space, we need to start talking a different discourse about the, the level of LGBT representativity in the workplace, the, the extent to which this group was discriminated against under apartheid, so remedying uh, an unjust situation rather than just inclusion. The LGBT discourse around inclusion in the workplace is too fuzzy, I think. It's too touchy-feely. It needs to be a bit more about justice. I couldn't agree more. The problem is, too, you know, the, a lot of people can't or won't or unable to or don't want to come out and then they stood it from the rights, but for no good reason except bad reasons. Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you want to take the last question on the broader discussions around discrimination more broadly? <laughs> so are the incentives for businesses to take this conversation broader? Um, I, sorry, I think so. I do think so. I think, um, you know, once LGBT, well, we had recently done a study with Open for Business, and we found that cities that are more inclusive towards LGBT individuals, um, they're more inclusive around LGBT practices within the workplace, um, they tend to perform better, um, their people are more productive, they're more happier to come to work. So I definitely think there is a benefit for organizations to become more inclusive around this topic. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, everything we do is top-down. So. Okay, I'm getting the hairy eyeball from all of the um, organizers in the front row and I want to cut my Oprah moment short. Um, so I just want to say... I just want to say thank you very much. This has been a really, really interesting morning. Um, for somebody who works in human rights every day, it's really, really interesting to hear you know, how it, human rights in practice um, is happening. So it's been a real privilege to be here. And just to sort of underscore the, you know, the fact that laws are great, but ultimately, if you don't know or understand the laws, you can't assert your rights. Um, and that it is important for us to remember that we come from a particular space and that there are specific things that need to be un undone in order for us to achieve the sort of hopes and aspirations of our constitution. And just one last thing, Fanti doesn't remember this, but the last time he saw me, um, you were on a panel on whiteness, power, and privilege. And if you remember that discussion, how difficult it was to get people to understand the, the sort of institutionalization of racism and, and privilege. Anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. So, uh, Oprah, you should have given us all signed copies of the Constitution before you left. Please arrange with uh, PLUS to get it to us. Appreciate it. Um, that's an interesting conversation because I was wondering at the end of it, you mentioned the equity report and Tracy mentioned uh, recommendations for how government can recognize smaller groups. What is government saying in that regard when it comes to the equity report? We're still waiting for the response. Look positive or no? Well, I mean, you know, one always stays positive because one wants to believe that the government wants us to achieve the grand sweep of our constitution. But we don't know. I mean, I think that there's a case to be made for it. And I think that the legislation speaks to the fact that we need to have broader definitions of what vulnerability means and what exclusion means. Yeah, that we can't just focus on race because you start to see that everyone focuses on race specifically to the exclusion of other, of other identities and rights that are being violated. You, more than, you are always more than just a gay or lesbian person. There's, there's a lot of stuff that comes into being that identity, and power is mediated on many different fronts. You can't just focus in on one. You have to be cognizant of that place where they all meet. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, given his role in writing up our constitution, President Sir Ramaphosa will uh, look at that favorably. This is Gay Essay Radio's coverage of the South African LGBTI Business Summit.